Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Tour de France recap. Tomorrow we will have our World Championships preview. It never stops in the 2020s cycling calendar. The UCI is trying to kill the riders and us with this condensed calendar. But we're a couple of days late. We took a couple of days off after a frenetic Tour de France, our first podcast, uh, well, our first Grand Tour together on the podcast. Benji, what have you been up to the last two days? You've been back into full-time work, haven't you? Yes, 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 but it feels like it has become a routine. And I think that for people that listen every day, that's probably the same thing. I've got that with TV shows I watch, with podcasts I follow, that I feel like whenever that one day it's not there, I'd heard saying when recording it, it was fun to have that rest day off. But yeah, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, me too. I enjoyed recording pretty much every podcast. It's sometimes watching the stages that it can be a bit of a grind when you know nothing too much is going to happen. But we're going to do this. We're not going to recap every stage. If you want to hear what happened in every stage in detail, we've got the catalogue of stages obviously uploaded on the podcast. If If you're on a long ride got no friends with you go and listen to them if you want to they're all pretty good in their own right but i'm going to quickly recap what happened in the tour you know as briefly as possible without going into the stages too much stage one nice won by christoph bunch sprint in the wet christoph goes into yellow jersey first time in his career stage two nice nice again mountainous stage breakaway on top of one of the last climbs alaphilippe wins ahead of her she leader after the stage into yellow already julian alaphilippe Next stage, second sprint stage, Nice de Cisteron, stage three. Caleb Ewan wins bunch sprint when he was zigzagging all over the place and came from nowhere on the barriers. Alaphilippe keeps yellow. Stage four, Cisteron to Orsier Mallet. Primoz Roglic won the stage. It was Yumbo train, then him sprinting. Took the bonus seconds. Alaphilippe, though, still kept yellow on that stage. Stage five, Gap to Priva, won by Wafanart. I can't remember what happened too much in the stage. I know it was maybe... Straight up bunch sprint where Roglic didn't need his help. Adam Yates moves into yellow. And stage six, Montaguel, breakaway win for Alexei Lutsenko on Astana, who's leaving next year apparently. Adam Yates keeps yellow. Nothing happened on GC. Stage seven, Milal to Laval. This is, uh, yeah, this was Wild Van Aert winning the stage again. This was the crosswind stage where Pagacha lost like a minute and 30 seconds. Yates keeps yellow. I think Lopez or Port lost time as well. While Van Aert was able to, they were able to shepherd Roglic along uh, Yumba Visma, and then he was able to sprint for a reduced bunch sprint ahead of Bosenhagen and Cockard. Stage eight to Ludenville. This was the Col de Perasud stage, breakaway win, Nans Peters, Ajdouala Mondial, maybe the height, the peak for the French teams in the Tour de France. Stage nine, day before the rest day, Pau de Laurent. Pagacha won the stage. That was that bunch sprint with Roglic. Hirschi, who's in the breakaway for like mm, a long time, and <laughs> Primoz Roglic uh, actually took yellow on that stage. Bernal was like fourth in the bunch sprint. Still looking good at that point, by the way. Egan Bernal, still like top five GC contender, good. Like that was a good good group he was with. Stage 10 after the rest day, the 
stage it was supposed to be the crosswind day. They didn't really eventu- eventuate. Ended up being boring as hell. Ildore, Bennett won uh, ahead of Primoz Droglic. Now, I can't see if he took green at that point, but I'm going to guess that he was in green there. Uh, stage 11 to Poitiers, Caleb Ewan won the brunch sprint. Roglic, till you know when. He's in yellow for the rest of this tour until the TT. Stage 12, Chauvin to Slaan. Mark Hirsch, he gets his redemption. Fantastic work by Team Sunweb in the breakaway. Uh, gets rid of Roland. He takes that W. Stage 13, the Puy-Marie stage. Big stage. Danny Martinez tracks back. Schachmann uh, breaks Lennon Kamner's heart and uh, takes the stage win. Puy-Marie Roglic looked the best GC rider in the tour. He had Pogaccio on his wheel, sort of at his mercy. They dropped Bernal, put about 30 seconds into him, I believe. Port was looking good. Stage 14 to Lyon, Soren Krah-Anderson's first win, one of my preferred stages, late attack from Krah-Anderson. Bernal attacked weirdly in that stage, by the way, at the end of the stage. Stage 15 to Grand Colombier, the end of the Ineos Empire, as we called it. Bernal losing seven minutes, Quintana looking bad. Tade Pogaccio winning the bunch sprint, taking four seconds on Roglic. Not, well, it was a bunch sprint, it's a mountain bunch sprint, when Jumbo Visma kind of, well, Roglic kind of cooked that finish. But Roglic still kept yellow. 40-second lead he had at that point on Tade Pogaccio. Stage 16 to Villa de Lens, Leonard Kamner. Obviously, the favourite of the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel, the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast, and I assume Benji's favourite at this point. He took a glorious stage win there. Col de la Lowe stage, Miguel Angel Lopez won that stage. From the GC riders, Roglic put 17 seconds into Picaccia, looking all rosy for Jumbo Visma at this point. 57-second lead now for Roglic. Stage 18, the redemption for Kwiatkowski and Carapaz and Ineos. He won that stage from a breakaway, dropping Bilbao at the end. Still nothing on... In GC, by the way, nothing on GC happened in those mountain stages except Col de la Lose and Bernal coming backwards on stage 15. Kra Anderson won from that breakaway in stage 19 where really nothing happened too much at all, just some rulers. All the rulers and breakaway candidates went up the road. GC riders were chilling, Rolich patting Pagatra on the back in stage 19 saying, ha-ha, let's just sit up, and they let, him, let them have a seven-minute lead in, in the end. Stage 20, ITT, Tata Pagatra won and uh, took yellow for the first time in the Tour after Roglic had worn it for oh, at least 10 stages, 10 or 11 stages. Pogaccio wins yellow, stage 21. Sam Bennett wins the bunch sprint, and having survived the mountains, he was a lock after stage 18, just about to win the green jersey. So Bennett wins green, Pogaccio wins yellow, Pogaccio wins polka dot, Pogaccio wins the white jersey. That's my quick wrap-up. Probably wasn't that quick of what happened in the Tour de France. I hope that helped refresh your memory a little bit, Benji, as well of what happened. I want to ask you straight away, who was your favourite rider of this tour in terms of aggression? And you can you can go with the obvious choice. Was it Pagacha? For me, it's two p- picks either. Pagacha, Hershey, and I hope you don't say Pierre Roland. I certainly won't say Pierre Roland, so I'll, I'll lift that off of you. But I have a few riders that I want to keep in mind towards the most aggressive rider. The most aggressive GC rider was, for me, Pogacar, and I think that's for everybody. He was mainly the only person that attacked outside of Lopez on Colalos, and I think that Quintana attacked at a certain point to try and counter Pogacar on the Paris Tour de stage. Bernal attacked on that flatter stage, a bit of a desperate move in the end, but yeah, in the end, Pogacar is the main aggressive GC rider. Now, when it comes to breakaways, I've got Hirschi versus Carapaz, because... I feel we fell in love with Hirschi in the first week, before the first rest day at least. 
in the stage from Porto Larin, where he was beaten so violently in the sprint by Pogacar and Roglic after being in the breakaway all day in that solo adventure. And I think every cycling fan globally cheered for him on that stage, hoping that he'd make it in that sprint, but he didn't. And to see him claw back and get back in the breakaway and fight for that other stage when he certainly got it and deserved it. And everybody kind of saw a potential stage win coming from him at that point onwards. So he was the most feared rider from breakaway stages in the Tour de France between like stage two and stage 14, 15. And in the end, we also saw Carapaz going into the break in the last few days. And that's all because Bernal was out of the picture. I think if Bernal was not out of the picture, Carapaz would have been a full-time, well, helper. I don't think he would have had any opportunity to go for himself in those last few days. I do want to attribute this to him as well, due to the fact that he goes into the breakaway three days, tries to get KOM points and such. He goes into it one day with Kwiatkowski. He has to give it to Kwiatkowski or gives it to Kwiatkowski. I don't know what the uh, behind-the-scenes decisions are or so forth, but it's admirable that he's able to do that and pretty much looks as happy as Kwiatkowski with Kwiatkowski getting that victory. And after that, he unfortunately loses his Polkadot jersey as well. So it's kind of a bummer maybe for Carapaz that he traded in a Tour de France stage for nothing. But I think this is a stage that's going to be kept in the minds of Carapaz, Kwiatkowski and Ineos fans in general and myself as well. It's one of the stages I loved the most because of that breakaway adventure and how it was dealt with in the end. That was a very special moment. So if I had to choose between Pogacar, Hirschi and Carapaz, I think I'm going to go for Carapaz because he didn't come out of this with any prize. And that's why I want to give him at least one award for this Tour de France. Yeah, that's that's fair. I'm gonna go with Hirschi. Um, because yeah, he just the way he rode in stage two, even where he just got beaten by Alaphilippe was really impressive. Just throughout the tour and then even on the stage he crashed, he was actually favourite during that stage in the live market before he crashed. So he was in breaks in contention to win from start to finish. Um, the next question I want to get to is the GC question, and I've got some pretty strong feelings on this, and there's been a lot of post-criticism of Jumbo Visma for their lack of aggressiveness in the tour. Enric Maas came out today or yesterday in the media saying we were scratching our heads at Movistar as to what on earth Jumbo Visma were doing in a lot of these stages. Eddie Merckx has come out and criticised them, but Eddie Merckx is, um, yeah, I just he shouldn't speak in the media so much. I think it's sometimes he just kind of the meme of an old old man shouting it at the uh, at the wind or whatever the meme is. But like the best quote was. He said in his thing, oh, well, if you can ask my friends and family, I was saying this all week. He's like, yeah, but you could say it to a journalist before they lost the tour, and I'm sure they would have publicized it too, and you didn't. So, like, at least we were saying it on the podcast, Benji, that we thought Jumbo Visma's tactics didn't really make sense throughout the tour. Leonard Kamner came on our rest day podcast and was kind of quizzing them as well. I half agreed with him. He probably, not to put words in your mouth, he really was shocked they burnt the Dumoulin second leader sort of avenue. I still, even with his time trial performance and seventh on GC, I still don't really think Dumoulin as a leader was very, very likely to beat Tadej Pogacar. But 
what do you think? Can you remember at any point during this tour, Benji, when did Yumbo Visma try and attack or do anything differently and initiate initiate trying to gain time on GC that were not just bonus seconds at the end of a stage? There's two arguments to this. You've got the situation where, firstly, you've got you saying that Dumoulin was never really in c- contention for GC and such. I don't think it matters where he could have ended up. I believe what matters is if he was closer to the top before the end, then he would have been able to play a more tactical role in the team. The issue with Jumbo is that at no point during this Tour de France, they really showed that they were even interested in doing a tactical like run into a potential stage to try and gain time differently and to try and play it a bit more offensively. I think they played extremely defensively in this Tour de France. On one end, you can blame them, and on one end, not. On one end, the blaming side, you've got the fact that throughout the Tour de France, we've said multiple occasions that their strategies didn't always make sense, like you said. An example of that is the stage of a Port de Balès, Pérezur de Loudanville. You've got, basically, your whole team riding before you get to Pérezur and you land on the Pérezur with Tom Dumoulin and Roglic, of which Dumoulin is working in the first two kilometers of Pérezurde. So you've got a situation where Dumoulin gives his leadership up on that stage, which was not yet necessary, in my opinion. At that point, Dumoulin was, I think, pretty close to Lin GC, I think on two-ish minutes. And when he actively chose to change that on top of the Porte de when Vanard was pacing and when he was looking a bit weaker, I, you said basically that he had a bit of a gap on the other favorites there, and there was weakness in him at that point, and that is where he actually decided. And he said, I can't keep up on Peresurde if this is the tempo of the GC favorites, but this is the tempo that they created. They create a tempo that leaves one of their higher-ups in GC in trouble. Well, I'm pretty sure a lot of the others were also in trouble, but Dumoulin was in a team where he is with another leader, and because of that, he makes that decision. But if they didn't go so offensively on the Porte de and the climb before that, they would have more teammates at the bottom of Pérezurde. You would be able to counter Pogacar better. Pogacar would not have been able to get away that easily if you've got four teammates compared to the two they had. I believe that they made a mistake of going too early there. So that's one of the aspects I'd go for, one of the moments in this Tour de France where... They made a mistake. In my opinion, if you have a team as strong as Jumbo at the start here with so many potential climbers that can stay up there with the other GC favorites, Kaz, Dumoulin, Roglic, then you can play it out more cleverly. You can try and think of tactical things instead of playing so defensively. You had Tadej Pogacar to win the Tour de France. Yes. That was your pick before the Tour started. Yes. So I think you were thinking the way you viewed Tadej Pogacar as a threat was not the same way if they had a whiteboard in the Team Yumbo Visma bus of real GC threats and who we're going to try and eliminate and who we're going to try and control. I don't think they were thinking of Tadej Pogacar in the same way. Now, I wasn't as strong on him as you were. I thought Roglic was going to win just because that's not to say that I thought Roglic was a better necessarily rider than Pogacar for this year's tour. I still thought that, but I didn't think it was a big margin. But I just thought their team was like ludicrously stronger 
than UAE's team. And it was. It was ludicrously stronger than UAE's team. And Pogaccia was, even though I had Roglic as a pick, by stage five and certainly by stage after stage eight, but even by stage five, it was pretty clear to me that the real threat on GC was Tari Pogaccia and maybe even Miguel Angel Lopez over Egan Bernal. But you know what? I think Jumbo Visma, and it's hard to blame them because look at who's won the Tour de France for like eight years, for the last eight years except for 2014. I think Jumbo Visma were petrified of Ineos. They thought Bernal was going to come out on Colder Lowe's and just have like some, and put like six minutes into Roglic. I think Jumbo Visma thought if there's somewhere that Roglic is going to crack and there's somewhere that the stage that was keeping the directors up at night was stage 15 high altitude, Colder Lowe's, Colombians attacking, Quintana, Bernal, Lopez attacking Roglic and he's got no teammates, Kust, you know, doesn't come through and then, Rolich loses five minutes. I think that's what they were more worried about. By stage five, and certainly by stage eight, it was pretty clear that A, Ineos were, they were literally two climbers on to help Bernal short. They had no second leader. Carapaz looked shit. Sivakov was injured. They had no white poles, sort of equivalent. Kwiatkowski was riding out of his skin. Amador, not really that good compared to how he was at Movistar last year. And Bernal... Yeah, Bernal wasn't looking like he was dropping any of the GC contenders anytime soon, really. And then stage eight, and I'm going to go, I'll, I'll die on this hill. I think Roglic didn't chase Pogaccia on Pedersud because he was his mate. Um, I know that might be a little bit of a boomer take, but I think if that was Egan Bernal going up the road that second time, given how Roglic still looked like he was doing it pretty easily, following other moves, countering Quintana, etc. afterwards. I think if that was Egan Bernal attacking, even if it was for the second time, I think Roglic closed it down um, 100%. And I think it was the fact that it was Pogaccia, who was 90 seconds, a minute 40 back. Roglic was like, well, A, he's not going to take the yellow jersey from me and on this stage, and B, well... Yeah, other he you know other riders can close it down. Why doesn't Egan Bernal close it down? He's the sort of the defending tour champion, and I get that sort of. But if you're the strongest rider to win the race, or strongest rider, strongest team, and you're trying to win the race, and someone's going up the road that's not that far behind you on GC, then if you view them as a legitimate threat or a real threat, you chase them and. Um, yeah, it's kind of backfired. Now, I don't, I can't prove why Roglic didn't chase. Maybe he didn't have the legs, but that's how I feel about it. And for me, that colours my perception then of how Jumbo Visma and Roglic thought about Pogaccia until pretty much the rest of the tour, actually. They thought, oh, well, he can take a stage here, a few bonus seconds, you know, down from 44 to 40. Doesn't matter too much, really. I mean, and then other stages, they weren't really trying to put time into him. Um, and then on stage 19, we saw Roglic laughing and Jumbo Visma looking relaxed, patting, patting Taddy Pogacar on the back, um, saying, oh, yeah, we'll just sit up, pull up stumps, and we've got the ITT tomorrow. And they all just chilled and rode into the finish. Because Jumbo Visma, I'm telling you, they, they thought 57 seconds was a very comfy cushion. And, I mean, it probably should have been. Like, he was, the betting markets thought it was. We still thought that was a pretty big margin. Um, not impossible. But we thought it was a 
it's a pretty comfy cushion. And I'm glad Tadej Pogacar won this year's Tour de France because it Jumbo Visma rode more defensively just about than Team Sky ever did. Um, Chris Froome rode more has ridden more aggressively in most of his Tour de France wins than Roglic did. Chris Froome would at least attack with like a few k to go in climbs. 2016, you know, descent attacks. We didn't even we didn't see. That's why I said at the top of the show. We did not see Jumbo Visma try and gain time once, except for bonus seconds. So, apart from sending Tom Dumoulin up the road like Novistar did with Lander and Quintana last year, Benji, which could have worked, like even though he was like seven minutes down, that still could have worked because um, people were joking on the Champs Elysees stage about who are these UAE riders? We haven't seen them for three weeks. And that's a little bit unfair to David de la Cruz and Jan Palance, but for a lot of the others, it's also true. Well, if there's the right composition of riders in the breakaway, UAE are going to have a really tough time chasing that back, and they're going to maybe pick their battles on that and let it go, and maybe Tumalan gains that time back. It, it is easy to criticise and say, well, they had the strongest team, they didn't do enough. What you also got to remember is, okay, he's the strongest climber in the race, Tati Pogaccia probably, except for like Colder Lowe's, but overall, probably strongest climber. He's better tactically in the wheels and a better racer than Primoz Roglic. I know he lost time in the crosswinds, but that seems to have been a mechanical issue or not his fault. He was then pulling that group in the crosswinds back. I think he makes better tactical and like decisions than Roglic. And he's obviously, well, now we see he's probably just as good, if not a better time trialist. So so when, it's easy to say, oh, well, they should use the team, leverage the team to put time into him. But how do you how do you put time into Tata Pogaccio? Like, Pick a stage, Benji. What could Jumbo Visma have done to get Primoz Roglic to put time into Tadej Pogacar at any other point in this tour apart from bonus seconds? Because lighting it up the climbs, well, as we know, if you're the best climber, it doesn't matter if it's the Sky Train, your train, or Jumbo Visma train, you're still getting the benefit of that train. So it's um, those stages aren't really good options to actually put a lot of time into Pogacar. The annoying part is that we don't necessarily have a real indicator to how good Roglic was on the stage where he did not gain any time. So we don't necessarily know on which stages he could have actually been like, well, now I can actually attack people. And maybe he played some stages purposely extra safe and decided not to attack. And because of that, didn't gain extra time. But it's hard to really guess that from an outside perspective. One key moment that Roglic could have reduced the gap was indeed that stage you mentioned. Whether he responded to Pogacar or not is not necessarily the one thing I'm eyeing, but at a certain point in that Parasota stage, you had Pogacar already up the road. We've got an attack, I think it was Quintana who attacked, and Roglic goes to Quintana's wheel and he sits on it. And at that moment, I doubt what the issue is here because they both had a clear necessity of closing the gap to Pogacar as much as possible. So as you're saying, it could either be the fact that he is letting Pogacar ride for a certain reason, whether it's patriotic or whether it's the fact that, well, he just doesn't have it that day. We don't know, but I believe he did have the energy to try and chase because if you can close down the gap to Quintana that way, because he was basically pedaling so hard on a on a very high gear just in his wheel keeping up with relative ease is what it looks like 
And I would expect that you would be able to at least keep that momentum going a bit instead of just sitting up. Because the moment that Quintana stopped his attack, Quintana stops and Rogic also stops. So Quintana is not always the uh, the person that works well together if you attack with him. But I believe that Roglic makes a key mistake there that he underrates the possibility of Pogacar there. And I think that's something you pointed out well. But in the end, I do want to point out that Pogacar makes a great time trial while Roglic underperforms in that time trial as well. But Pogacar's time trial is something I don't think anyone really expected. We cannot expect Jumbo to expect a performance of Pogacar like this because of historically there's no real thing pointing towards it. And I disagree that that ITTNC really points to it, to a potential Pogacar coup like this one, which, yeah, uh, he, he trained for this time trial specifically, and he trained for this, I think, quite a lot. And the main difference is that he also didn't recon it the day itself because he reconned it quite a few times earlier in the season, while Roglic did it during the day itself, I think, if I recall correctly. So tactically, I believe that there's two sides of the coin here. You've got the fact that Jumbo could have done things better to gain more time, but on the other end, I don't believe we can expect them to anticipate this big of a coup on the time trial. Yeah, exactly. Like, at what point do you not criticize Jumbo Visner at all? What if that? What if he went in with a one minute and fifty gap? He still would have lost the tour. Like, is a one minute fifty gap? Should Jumbo Visner have been comfortable with that? Of course, they should have been, based on everything we knew up to that point. Like, that is still. If you told them before the Tour de France, hey, going into that last TT. Roglic will have a minute 50 on Tadej Pogacar, uh, they would have been like, we'll take that. That's a good result for us because nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, he'll win that TT. He'll, he won't be losing a minute 50 to Tadej Pogacar. Now, what is interesting is what has come out from the Pogacar camp after the ITT, which uh, I've, I've been really encouraged to see, which is they did it right professionally. They got Mikkel Berg, and he's part of that Danish... Uh, the Danish trio of uh, Johan Price Pedersen, Björg, and Matthias Norsgaard. I've already had a couple of them on my channel. And those guys are like, they're, they're TT obsessives. Uh, they're always, I mean, when Norsgaard was speaking to me about how they had this house in Girona, I think they're always tinkering with their position, three time trials living together. They really think about it like cerebral guys, very smart guys. And it's funny how they've got the back-to-back-to-back, I think, under-23 world champion in the TT. He won last year, Berg, at UAE. And he was pretty much Pogacar's, like, TT coach in the recons. He went with Pogacar. They wrecked the TT multiple times at Planche de Belfi. They practiced the bike change. They figured out how to optimize his bike. He had a one-by, I think, a one-by TT bike. Uh, He had junior gearing with a tight cassette on his road bike, 5036 and like a 1429 maybe, something like that, for his road bike on the climb. Just really smart stuff. They've got Alan Piper there, uh, the Italian physiologist. He's, his name eludes me. Seems to be a pretty smart guy. We're going to try, try and get all these people on the pod in the off-season um, when we can ask them, when they've got more time and we can ask better questions. I don't like doing sort of day-after interviews when people are all frazzled uh, and we probably can't get access either. We're not that big yet. Uh, Benji, sorry to say, but yeah, it just shows how they undertook it with proper professionalism and like the way I think, the way I expect 
everyone to have wrecked it if they want to be a GC contender at the Tour de France. And I'm almost more surprised that people are making last-minute adjustments on the day like that. That's kind of shocking to me. Like if I was a GC contender or a DS at a team, I would have wrecked every single mountain stage in the months before. Now, maybe this is difficult with Corona, okay, I grant you, but pretty sure these guys could move. They could have done this if they needed to. Like if Pogaccio was able to do it, then I see no reason why Roglic couldn't have done it. Yeah, they need to. You need to have that all that shit ironed out before the the tour starts. So there's less stress, less variables. You're not changing things on the day. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, and that's why, yeah, Pagacha's performance was, I guess, another reason why it was so different to Roglic's. You know, we thought in the pod before on stage twenty or oh, nineteen, we thought that gap is fine. But I'll just leave you the one, one little uh, thought bubble that I had, and we'll move on to the next the next wrap up question. Stage 19, Roglic, instead of patting Tata Pagatra on the back, the rulers have all got up the road. Every major team looking for the stage wins represented. Sunweb, Quickstep, CCC, Michelton Scott. No one is going to chase if there's any further moves out of the break. No one did because, well, they had a two and a half minute gap and they weren't going to get brought back. UAE have virtually no riders of note with Pagatra, maybe uh, a couple, maybe Marcato and Dela Cruz. And uh, Jumbo Visma have got Janssen, Martin, Wavanaert, and they've got Roly Terrain. Where was the ambush attack? If they ambushed, I was talking to people that night before the TT, I was like, if they, for some reason, just went on the front, no one was expecting it, and not just riding on the front and then increasing the pace, I'm talking let someone else lead and then come at the front and really attack with Roglic in Wavanaert's wheel, like Sagan was in Bodnar's wheel, uh, in 2016, I think it was when Froome gained time on GC and Sagan won that stage. Like an ambush attack, probably no one chases them, or maybe the GC teams have to quickly collaborate, but they're trying to chase back Martin, Wavanaert, and Janssen swapping turns. Now, maybe I'm, this is fairyland thinking, but we just never, one, we never saw them try anything like that. Their real strength in that team, yeah, it's Koos, but they also had Wavanaert, Tony Martin, and Grundal Janssen, extremely strong on the flats and rolling terrain like that. And they never leveraged them to actually gain time on GC, except for Wavanaert pacing in the mountains, which wasn't to gain time, more to control. They never leveraged that strength at all to gain time. The only team we saw trying to use their flat strength was actually Ineos on stage seven in the flat, in the crosswinds. So I feel like the weakest point of UAE was supporting Tade Pagacha in terrain like that. Maybe unless Christoph was able to do something on Marcado, I don't know. But their weakest point was that, and you could have had a situation where David de la Cruz is trying to pull back a pull back Wavanaert and Tony Martin on his own with Pegatra on his wheel. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I've got to say on it. Hopefully, that encourages teams next year to ride more aggressively. To answer Maximilian Schoen's question, he said a bonus second is a good thing for exciting stages. <sighs> Before the tour, I always thought they were, and then I realized, well, if there's too many bonus seconds, it just encourages everyone to just sit together in the group and then sprint for the line at the end of these mountain stages. So, yeah, I don't – I'm not sure they're that exciting. But I want to – I'll throw to you, Benji. I've been speaking a lot, my own little thoughts. Do you think people – some said, some people have said uh, – I always say some people. It's probably just one person on Twitter. But, yeah, I saw people saying, "Do was this the best Tour de France in ages? Do you think this is one of the best Tour de France, Tours de France ever? What's your take on it, having a couple of days to really think about it? 
I don't think it is. Um, I well, for me, it certainly isn't. And the reasons for that are simple. It felt like a Ineos like Grand Tour for the first two weeks because Jumbo was controlling it that closely. The thing that makes it the greatest for people is the eventual upset on stage 20. And if that one stage was different, then their view of the whole Grand Tour would change. And for me, one stage can't make a Grand Tour. I've got the feeling that from Grand Tours in the past, I've got quite a few Grand Tours where I can remember multiple aspects of a Grand Tour that really made entertainment for me. An example, I'd say that 2010 was a year where I really enjoyed the Tour de France and it had drama, the chain of uh, of Schleck with the Contador attack. We had the Tumale battle. We also had Cavendish in the sprints. It was a pleasure to see. We always knew that Cavendish was the most likely winner of the sprints that year, but the way he did it and his eventual celebrations and such were original and different, and because of that, it was special. And Cancelar was great that year as well. I think he took the both the ITGs. Maybe it's because that Grand Tour lies important in my nostalgic history of cycling, because that was around three years into when I started watching cycling properly. I think it was one of the first Grand Tours I followed fully. I started watching cycling about 2006, 2007, and yeah, that grew gradually towards 2010, where it really started with my uh, addiction pretty much at this point. And 2010, yeah, it, it's in my mind. And I feel like it's one of the best Grand Tours I've seen on television. And it had more than a few stages that lit up. It was just a whole Grand Tour that had aspects that pulls me to it. But again, it might be the nostalgia that does that. Then 2011, also a very good ground tour in my honest opinion. I think that's the one Evans won as well and had plenty of good things. I think it was the Galibier where we had uh, the, the eventual battle with Schlex 1 and 2. We had, yeah, so many good things on the ground tour. Hushoft Stuvens, was that 2011? I think it was. I could be wrong. Yeah, um, I, th- I think so. And then, yeah, Schleck, uh, the TTs with Schleck and Evans, they were so good. I think what 2019, I, I prefer 2019 to this year's tour. 2019, the constant GC tension with Philippe. Is he going to lose yellow today? Can he hang on? Oh, my God, he's got it for another day. Could he actually win the Tour, tour de France? Um, and Sky not looking as dominant. Pino looking really good. Uh, I thought last year's was more exciting. Personally, I think this year there are a lot of stages where Really, the G- the mountains really disappointed this year. Uh, apart from Bernal really cracking, which isn't like a highlight to me. It's more actually unfortunate that Ineos weren't as strong this year. If Ineos were really, really strong, that would have made for a really good battle uh, between the two trains, hopefully. That's what I was hoping for all season. And Buchman too, you know, Buchman and Pino. I, I thought it was going to be a big showdown and it was kind of different. It was Jumbo Visma controlling then a heist at the end. Moving on to... What teams were winners and losers, Benji? Obviously, Movistar are really the ultimate winners of this Tour de France, winning the team's classification. But what teams do you think, we don't have to go through every single one saying whether, yes, they had a tick tour or a bad tour. I think Robbie McEwen does a similar thing with a rating system. You see that on his Instagram. But what teams really stand out to you that overperformed above expectations and others that really underperformed? Now, my quick one is 
uh, all the French teams pretty much, except for Ajdoua Le Mondial took out a stage win. But other than that, no stage wins apart from the one and no real GC contention either. And like barely any top threes in stages either, honestly. Like FDJ were atrocious, like really, really bad um, this year. Ajdoua... It's not their fault that Roman Bardet had a bad crash, so maybe they get a little pass, actually, uh, as you are. Roman Bardet actually looked quite good before that, but still not really doing too much. They're a pretty one-dimensional team. I guess they had Benoit Cosnefroy kind of keeping the KOM jersey for longer than he deserved. Total direct energy, whew, nothing. Uh, was B&B kind of competitive a little bit with Pierre Rolland in the breaks he missed out, and then... Coca got, I think, a top three in one of the stages, but still nothing. And they weren't really in the breaks either, getting that TV time. And Arkea Samzik, pretty bad tour as well. Um, yeah, not really any top threes on stages, were they either? Obviously, the Quintana had that that crash that affected him too, the same one where Bardet crashed. So maybe that really knocked out Ajouar and uh, Arkea Samzik when they were really going to improve in the last week. But, yeah, not a good time I don't think for those teams um, they're kind of the, the teams that didn't do very well in my perspective and I think I'm going to talk about maybe at the end of the podcast or later what this tour says about strategy for next year and whether they could learn a thing or two from Sunweb but yeah which team stood out for you as a not having a great tour Benji or not having a good tour or having a good tour there's quite a few teams that I believe were not really great here I've got, for example, CCC as one of the teams where I'm, I'm really like, wow, 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 wow. Because they've got Van Avermaet, they've got Trentin, and they come out of this with, I think, a third place in the green jersey classification, and that's it. They have a team at the start here that can genuinely compete for stages, and they get nothing out of it. It's because I feel they don't cooperate properly. We've got stage 19 as a perfect example. You've got Van Avermaet and Trentin in the front group. And Søren Kronersen rides away. And what do we see in that group? Well, nothing. <laughs> they don't work together. And because of that, you've got a situation where they're clearly not working well. It's maybe because the, th- the team's folding, basically, because I think we can confirm it at this point that CCC is going to fold. What do you think? Like, uh, Never say never, but... In in principle, the riders were riding as if the team is folding. So in, it didn't really... It, it, your point still stands. Then Israel Startup Nation. Well, their main goal was to finish the uh, finish the tour with Guy Niff. So I guess that for their ideals, for the team's reason that they exist, this is what they were made for. They made that goal. So while their team was, yeah, not really there for me and didn't really achieve much... I think the main goal of the the person that invested in this team actually was achieved, which is meh. It's it's good for the team, but for us, it looks like they were not really great at the Tour de France. But I think they've got their main goal anyway. I I don't remember. It's very difficult for me to think in professional sports how many instances of going from where they are right now to then being in genuine Grand Tour GC contention next year with Froome. To me, that is in- impossible. And I got, obviously, my mate Seb Berwick is going there next year. 
he's a climber, etc. But I got no insight into anything, etc. When it comes to ISU, we, we don't talk about anything like that. Um, but like he's a neo pro, he's like twenty years old. He's one of their good climbing signings. Like I think he's going to be overperform before people you know realize or before people expect. But still, like you, it's hard to see how they go from the team they have now to I don't you know. Who are they going to put around for him as well? You've got to have a you've got to have a full team, really. And I know UAE didn't have a full team, like of compared to what Sky and Yumbo Visma bring, but they had Tade Pagacha. Like Chris Froome is probably not going to be as good as Tade Pagacha next year. So yeah, I I struggle to see. I know they've signed a lot of people and they're signing a lot. They got MP, etc. But yeah, it's it's difficult to change from where they are. Just as culturally, that sort of winning mindset, etc. God, I sound like a boomer this podcast. I sound like every like college football coach, but it's true. Um, still, like if you're not used to winning stages or being up there or how to protect your GC rider, because you never have to protect a GC rider, how do you learn that? So, yeah, that's. I wouldn't say it's a massive success for them, but with the roster they had. Or who they could pick from, what really could they do? Um, Colfidius didn't really have a great tour. Guillaume Martin came 11th, but no stage wins. Elio Viviani, maybe the biggest drop-off of any rider from 2018-19 to 2020. He was literally anonymous this tour until the last stage where he came, I think, fifth. Um, he's on, like, I can't remember, like, solid million and a half euro a year, I think. At Colfidius coming from Quick Step. I think we've mentioned it before that you you got to be careful who you pay who's been in that quick step lead out train for a while. And we spoke about it with Bennett, trying to judge between Bennett and Ewan. If I had to pay someone, if I had a blank slate, no lead out yet picked and I had to pick one, I'd pick Ewan over Bennett mainly because, yeah, you got to, I just discount people because of that quick step lead out train, given that we saw from Viviani this year, just looking. Well, it's weird though, because it can't just be the quick step lead out because he won Euro champs, didn't he? Um, Although he's kind of had Lampard leading him out. I don't I don't know. It's so weird how he was just gone from literally not competitive at all this year except for one sprint where he didn't come top three. Uh, I want to talk about Mitch and Scott Benji quickly. And I know not just because they're Australian. And I want to talk about when should you change your pre-tour strategy based on a few things going your way in the race. Do you think this was this tour was a win? For Mitch and Scott, um, given that did they win any stages? No, they didn't win any stages. Um, but they did have Adam Yates in the yellow jersey for four days. He eventually came. Where did he come? He came ninth on GC, nine minutes back, and they weren't competitive for points, youth, or KOM jersey at all. And they weren't really competitive for many stages after he took yellow either. So. What was I think this tour was a ne- uh, not a good tour result for Mitchell and Scott after last year. I think once again we're seeing that if they're tying their wagon to uh, Esteban Chavez being that guy, he ain't that guy. Um, if you're going into a Grand Tour with in 2020 or 2021 with Esteban Chavez as your GC leader, good luck to you uh, because he's not very good in my view. I know it's harsh. Um, He's won three stages of Giro, won Lombardia, won... Well, I'm looking at all these races he's won. They're all back in 2016. I think that tells you all you need to know about where he is right now. 
Um, they tried. He couldn't even get into brakes, man. How many stages, Benji, did we see in the mountains with the brake going up the road and poor old Jack Bauer and Luca Metzgetz having to pull five minutes later, trying to pull Esteban Chavez over a gap that they just they were never going to be able to pull. Um, like, I think they had Yates in yellow for a fair bit and they changed direction. I think once Yates lost yellow, yeah, it's hard, right? It's like, oh, well, top 10 on GC at the Tour. That, that is a result of sorts, but why didn't he do what Philippe did? When Philippe lost yellow, he just deliberately lost 18 minutes so he could get into breakaways. That was Quickstep's plan. They stuck to the plan. And I'm not saying Yates had to give up yellow when he had it. That's ridiculous. Of course, you've got to fight for yellow when you have it. But once you lose it, and you're probably never, you're not going to get it back, or you're not going to even contest for top three on GC, and your plan before the tour was to hunt stages, stick to your plan. And they didn't. And there's a lot of breakaways in that third week where I'm looking at it, I'm like, boy, Adam Yates would have been the favourite if he was in this break. Um, or do you think they were just got on lucky Benji and they could have won a stage here or there? Or the, Do you think the four days in yellow makes up for it? No, I don't think it makes up for it. But your initial question was when to change your pre-set tour goal. But I would indeed change it like the way you said it at the end of this argument. It is not really changing your preset goal it's when you go into a ground tour aiming for stage wins and you accidentally end up in yellow then you focus on that yellow for a bit basically the day he lost it he already lost quite a few spots in gc at that moment i would have said lose time because there's so many stages to come where he was not going to stay with the favorites and was going to lose minutes and it was genuinely expected that he was going to do so at that point so I would have said lose time and lose it the moment that you lose that yellow goal as a, a possibility because you're not going to keep the podium anyway. That was never going to stick. And as you said, third week, plenty of opportunities for it. So yes, I believe that Mitchelton, well, they never really switched back to their initial goal. They sticked on to the GC goal and stayed there. And I believe that is one of the mistakes they made here and because of that, I believe that they lost that possibility of gaining more stage wins in the end. Then, in other stages, they had Mezgetz, who was not necessarily bad in this tour. I gotta be honest, he had the possibility of winning a few stages, and I believe that if they played that 19th stage differently, they would have had a better chance. They were up there as well with two people, and Bauer was at the back, Norman Sutton Kronerson went, and it took him a tiny bit to move to the front and start working for Mezgetz. Yeah, in general, it just feels like they had more of an opportunity to gain more with Yates. And the issue is that Chavez indeed has said that he still has the goal of winning the Tour de France. He said that last year, I think for twenty or 2020 or 2021. I did not see that goal anywhere near a possibility. And I, the first time I saw that, I was like, this is a meme. This can't be true. But he actually said that. And the fact that they trust in that I don't get it because he's just as bad at time trialing as Adam Yates. So what were they thinking? Uh, yeah, I don't get it. I generally don't get it. It's a bit of a mess. I don't know. Like, it's the same thing with UAE a bit in the sense that they announced that Ari was their leader. I, I believe that was a bit of a ploy. Uh, I don't believe that's actually the truth. And afterwards, 
in hindsight, they did interviews where they said that it was always the plan of Pogacar being the leader, which I now believe with all the preparation into the time trial and such. And Aru, yeah. I don't know what they're going to do with Aru. I generally don't know. You've got a team, UAE, that is one of the winners as teams here because they won the Tour de France and they were not necessarily the highest favorite to do so. They already won great with the stage wins of Pogacar himself and also Kristoff at the start. Kristoff getting a stage win, getting that first yellow jersey. That is really good for the team and also for the image of UAE and UAE because they try and advertise as much as possible on top of the performances of the UAE team. So I believe that's definitely one of the teams that is obviously one of the winners. But a really difficult team to judge as winner or loser for me is Jumbo Visma. And it's an obvious one because if you come to the Tour de France with the goal of yellow... Just yellow, by the way. Just yellow. Not podium. They say nothing else matters. Stage wins, it's all extra details. If we can take them, we take them. If not, not. Green jersey, nah. We're not going to spend energy on it. We're not going to risk it. And then they end up without the yellow? Then I believe you made a mistake. And yeah, I believe that if you got Van Aert in the team, then you, you could have definitely, without risking too much, have gotten him in the green jersey, in my honest opinion. Did he need to babysit Roglic there? Really? Did he need to? Like, or not really? Like, Adam Yates, Adam Yates was chilling. They sent Manskets up the road. Um, like, not really sure. <laughs> like, there was, a, there was a lot of hand-holding for Jumbo Visma and tying up on our back um, this tour. And, yeah, it's I'm not going to say, like, it's a mistake. I was just saying their plan, their goal was to win yellow. That was what would be a success. And they didn't achieve that. So that's just the reality of it. On Back to Fabio Aru, he's not contracted at UAE for next year. So he's obviously not going to be recontracted there. He's on yeah. 1.8 million a year euro there. Um, they have said some pretty unsavory things about him on that stage where he DNF'd, which was a shame. I think, like me and you, I've been critical of, like I blame UAE for that, really. You didn't have to take him to the tour. You would have seen his numbers before the tour. You knew what condition he was in. You're the ones that put it out in the media that he's your co-leader. And... um yeah, like the guy's still coming back from whatever, whatever, like open heart surgery or whatever it was. I don't know exactly. I say he had a problem with his heart, like a serious shit. And um, yeah, I kind of maybe it's his fault too. I don't know. Like maybe maybe he's a personality that's like, hey, I, I'm I'm on the most salary on this team. I won the Vuelta in 2015. Um, I need to be co-leader, and we sort of saw that in Giro 2015 too, where it's like, uh, is Fabio stronger than Mikel Lander, Astana? <laughs> could, could they really, like, wouldn't they be better off attacking Contador with Mikel Lander? Wouldn't that be a better idea? If, if Astana want to win the Giro, it might have been better to use them as a uh, two leaders. But um, that's by the by. I, I don't know because I'm, uh, I'm not in their team meetings. But, yeah, he's going to be taking a big... Big, big, big pay cut next year. Yeah, for if sure. He, and if he, if he even gets a World Tour contract at all. I don't think he's going to get a World Tour contract, but it's not because he's not going to get one, but because I heard a rumor and it was from a pretty good Twitter source these days that, well, nine out of the 10 transfer rumors he puts on there actually end up happening. So I've got trust in this. 
And he says that Aru might actually end up signing with Cometa, who is that Italian youth team by Condor. The cultural feeder team, right? Yeah. yeah. Bas- is that Basso as well? Yeah, correct. And they are going to try and step up, I think, to Pro Continental because they are now Continental, which is third division in cycling to second division con- Pro Continental. So on paper, Aru could genuinely be a good factor there for me. You've got a rider that has lost his way. Maybe this is a way to get back on track, to find a purpose in cycling. And I believe that that might actually be a genuinely fun transfer for him. I mean, if you look at look at all the young riders on Trek Segafredo, literally half of them have come out of that team. So it's a team doing something right. Uh, they're developing talent really well. Maybe it's a low pressure way, you know, way for him to go and get some rack up some better results. But that's probably enough time on Fabio Aru. One thing we we've spoken a lot about GC. I don't, I don't really want to speak about KOM because that competition kind of bored me this year. I don't know what went wrong with it, but Cosnefry was just in the jersey way too long, and then. Uh, the GC, Pagacha just kind of won it by default by being good in the mountains and winning the TT. Green jersey. i got to say, big tick for the green jersey competition, the way they designed it. Where they put the intermediate sprints, the points allocation between them, that was a competition we were. I was enthralled by for pretty much every tour since Bennett was in green, or almost all tour, because... Is he going to miss the time cut? Is Sagan and Bora going to be able to drop him on this little rolling hill before the intermediate sprint? Is it going to be a rolling finish where they can drop Bennett like on stage, ooh, the first time Kranz and stage 14 in Lyon, I'm thinking, where they drop Bennett, but Sagan only came fourth, didn't get enough points. Um, like it was really exciting. It's a shame it could it's a shame it didn't come right down to the Champs-Élysées, but I think the way they structured it was really good. I think it was a pretty good contest between pure sprinter and not pure sprinter. I don't know how you class again anymore. But maybe it would have been boring, right, if Wild Van Aert was allowed to go for green. Maybe he would have mopped it up. But I'm not so sure it would have been like a complete cakewalk either. Um, but it would have added another interesting layer to it. Um, so I really like, I thought the green jersey competition was really good this year. Probably the most exciting one it's been for 10 years or or eight years or however long. I thought it was really, really good. I think Sam Bennett should be proud of what he did. Defending that was really impressive. He did have Quickstep helping him, especially at all those intermediates. So it was a team win for Quickstep, that green jersey. I, I would like to say, yeah, congrats to Quickstep. They had a good tour, obviously. Uh, what, three stage wins was it? And the green jersey, that is a that's a fantastic tour result from them. But yeah, what do you think, Ben? Assuming you like the green jersey competition, but also did you see anything from Sagan in this year's tour or that concerns you? Or why do you think okay, here's another way to phrase it. Twenty twenty twelve Sagan, does he win green in this year's tour? That twenty eleven, twenty twelve or twenty thirteen Sagan, he turns up, does he win green easy and it's not even an interesting competition? 2013 green uh, Sagan. Well, I'm calling him green already, but 2013 Sagan, yeah, wins green here. And that is because there's plenty of opportunities to gain more points where Bennett could not take it. And Sagan was unable to do that this year. Now, do I write him off forever because he didn't get the green jersey right now? No, 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 no. Because we've got the classic still coming out, but also the fact that he's going to the Giro 
And I genuinely think that he's going to be better at the Giro than at the Tour de France. Because throughout the Tour de France, I feel like I saw him growing in the race. At the start, we were like, well, he's launching a sprint. Then he just can't do anything. He just sits up, hopes for the best, and never really has a speed that can contest the real sprinters. But towards the end of this Tour de France, I feel like he came through a bit. And he popped his head out a bit more. And because of that, I've got hopes that in the Giro, we're going to see more of a a 2018 again. I don't want to call 2013 because I think that's that's during prime years. And I think that it's going to be tough to get back to prime years. In previous years, Peaks again wouldn't have needed Bora to do anything. I think you get to those little rollers and there's a man who's sort of on an 800-meter climb or 8% for a kilometre, or maybe not, maybe 6% for a kilometre, he'd be dropping the whole peloton with just Joaquin Rodriguez with him and and Dan Martin. And he couldn't drop Sam Bennett on similar climbs. Now, maybe they weren't quite hard enough, but still, he peaks again. You could just, he's a freak. Peaks again could ride anyone in the world off his wheel, just about on any terrain except like an HC climb. And we're just seeing come back to that level where he's not able to do that at will. Um, now, I'm going to write a longer piece on this of why Sagan didn't win green this year. It's down to team composition too. Like, he didn't really have anyone. He had Oss, but apart from Oss, the team wasn't set up. It was set up for Bookman. Again, he wasn't as strong. And then, yeah, the placement of the intermediate sprints, etc., maybe didn't suit him. And he's not he's not climbing as well as he can. Like some days when he was really motivated in previous years, he's like, fuck it, I can actually climb pretty well for my size and stick with this breakaway. Um, but any Cat 2 this year, he was getting spat in from a break. So he's, yeah, he's not looking as good. But, hey, he's got, he's got the classics after the tour this year. It's a completely topsy-turvy tour. So... Not ruling him out for anything. I have seen a few concerning things like the uh, the cash grab with the limited edition big coins with the uh, weird <laughs> weird depiction of his face on it. That I'm was like, funny. is that some? Are you knowing that your like your star is about to dim and you want to get that end of career money? I don't know. Even if it isn't that, that's still weird as hell. And uh, I've bought five of them already at eighteen thousand euro a piece, but. Yeah, I'm hoping I can arbitrage that for some more money given the euro uh, to AUD exchange rate. But, yeah, that's that's Peter Sagan. Bit of an enigma. Uh, he's always left – like, it's weird. He does things like that, but he's left probably millions of euro on the table by not having good social media for his whole career. Um, his social media, whoever runs it, they don't know what they're doing. But um, I think we need to talk about Sunweb. Uh, this wasn't planned, but – I. I need to, we need to give a big congrats to Sunweb, and we spoke about Mitchell and Scott not honouring their pre-tour strategy as much as they should have. Well, Sunweb, they came into this tour and they, well, they win three stages, Benji. One from Hirschi, two from Solon Anderson. I think it was three stages. And the team they brought, Mark Hirschi, young Swiss rider, um, probably weren't expecting him to win that stage and do so well. Teich Benot, Nicholas Roche, Casper Pedersen, Nikis Arndt. Case Bowl, Son Anderson. And it's just a pure stage hunting team. And they made no bones about it. Bowl looked good in the early sprints and then really tailed off at the end of the tour. I think the mountains obviously cooked him. Like look at his Champs Elysees position is is pretty that's pretty terrible where he came in the Champs Elysees. But then 
Like he looks really good in the early parts of the tour. I was kind of nervous. Um, but yeah, the way they used Benoit, Roche, Pedersen, Hirschi and Kranderson. In fact, they, the way they used the whole t- team, they used the whole team perfectly. Like on the stage on 19 where it wasn't so hard or, or hilly, they have Nikias Arndt in that group with Kranderson. Nikias Arndt, so a strong ruler, but actually packs a mean punch too. And they got him as a counter a counterattacker there or helping him get there. They got Casper Pedersen who, even when they miss breaks, has the engine to then bring across Teichmann or Hirschi or Kranerson or whoever across to the break that they've missed, and they'd make that decision and get across quickly before it was too late, rather than like B&B trying to bridge a five-minute gap, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, when it was too late. Uh, Kranerson, really good foil on the not-so-hilly stages with Teichmann as well. We saw that Lyon stage, him, Benoit and Hirschi, all three of them attacking then the really hilly stages where, like, Roland was in the break, Hirschi and Benoit were perfect with Nicolas Roche blocking. It's just every stage like that where there was an opportunity for stage wins, They the team was a perfect blend of different riders. Um, and, yeah, it was super impressive what they were able to do in this year's tour. They copped a lot of flack. Now, I already publicly apologised to them, but not to Case Bowl. He didn't win a stage, by the way, Just just saying. They still might have won the green jersey. The criticism of them not taking Matthews is still kind of valid. He still could have won the green jersey this year. So uh, that was my main source of criticism for them, not taking Matthews. Um, maybe you drop out Nicky Assant and or Case Bowl, and you put in Matthews, what, you drop out one of those two, and then, yeah, you've got a better shot of the green jersey. Maybe you win even more stages. Now, Sunweb's counter to that, and I've got to play devil's advocate, Sunweb's counter to that is we have a, a different whole of team strategy and their whole of team strategy, well, sorry, their strategy is a whole of team strategy. It is we do not have a lead out with Casper, Nikias, Soren Kranderson and Teichbenot all protecting Michael Matthews and just leading him out. And maybe there was, I, I don't know anything about this, I'm just speculating, Maybe, yeah, there was disagreement on the direction the team should go, whether it was Michael Matthews saying, hey, listen, look, at I'm top rider, third in MSR. You've got to ride for me protect as a protected rider. And I get where he's coming from. If Simon Guerin said maybe chased back in world champs a few years ago, maybe he's a, he would have been world champion for a year. And I, but on the other hand, some were like, well, we've got these young riders, these perfect stage hunters. We want to use them in a different way that we think is more effective for actually getting stage wins and sort of having a traditional sprinter to ride or to protect or or in reduced bunches isn't really what we're looking for. Now, I don't know. I, I feel like if they could, they, I feel like they could have made it work because Matthews is climbing almost at the best ever in his career. Look at him at uh, Terreno. You mentioned that the other day, Benji. I got. I feel like they could have made it work. Um, and if it, if they couldn't, then that's a communication thing on Sunweb, and that wouldn't surprise me because their communications with riders sometimes leaves a bit to be desired. Um, but yeah, I feel like it should have taken Matthews, but that aside, an unbelievable tour for them. Hats off to Sunweb, and they got to be patting themselves on the back with those three stage wins. Is there? Yeah, what do you? 
who do you think is going to earn the most out of these these riders on Sudweb, Benji? Who most impressed you, Kranderson or Hershey? Well, I think it's going to be Hershey in general because Søren Kranderson is firstly older. Additionally, Hershey has the adventures that he did. They're more applicable to more terrains in cycling, more terrain type. So I think you can use him in the mountains. I think you can use him in the punches. And because of that, I believe he's more valuable than Søren Kranderson, who he's not batting climbing he's not great either you won't see him in the last 25 of the gc guys at this point in his career i think in the dumoulin giro he was pretty good at supporting dumoulin but i think at this point in his career he's made the choice that he's focusing on classics and on relatively flat slash a bit hilly terrain and i believe hirshi has more value that way as well because he can achieve more that way i don't believe that Anderson will, for example, win the Tour of Flanders this year. Let's hope it doesn't collapse on my head here. <laughs> but Hirschi in general feels like a breakthrough on a World Tour level that we knew Hirschi as the talent. Mainstream cycling followers probably did not know Hirschi. As an example, you've got the Widow podcast. The first thing Armstrong said was, who's this guy? Who's Hirschi? And that is for me the example that he made a solid breakthrough in the mainstream media and just in the mainstream itself that people now know who Hirschi is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what people think or what people know. Um, I try to stay off the internet except for when I'm putting things on it. Um, but yeah, I don't think they're well known before and hopefully they are well known now. I know the cameras were definitely on Anderson a lot more on that stage 20 ITT when he was sort of warming up than other riders. But just quickly, I want to read out some of the names Sunweb have got contracted for 2021. Timon Aronsman, fan of the podcast. Uh, Bardet, Benoit, Boll, Marco Brenner, fan of the podcast. The young German super talent, Dainese, Niels Echov, who will win a monument in his career. He will win a monument. Write it down now. Mark Hirschi, Jai Hindley, who won Harold Sun to a young Australian climber, Casper Pedersen, Michael Storer, um, who else? Ilan Van Wilder, Kevin Vermaak, the 19-year-old American, Andres Lechnersund, uh, 21-year-old. He's the TT guy, right, from uh, UNOX, from memory. Uh, Chris Hamilton, Felix Gold from... I think he's from Austria. They, they they got so many young riders and they're already getting results. Like I think they're going to have a good year next year. Uh, uh, hopefully they put Bardet into into that system they used with Benoit, Hirschi, and Roche this year. And maybe if Roche takes a step back, he's thirty six now. Slot Bardet in. That's that's going to be really strong <laughs> for hunting stage wins next year. But that was really we don't harp too much on uh, Jumbo Visma. We've spoken a lot about that green jersey, wrapped up the stages. Um, but the last question I do want to ask for you, Benji, is going into the Vuelta España, Froome's going, Jumbo Visma just announced that Dumoulin and Roglic is, are going. Do you think they're going to ride 100% for Roglic? I, I mean, I already know the answer to the question. I think they're going to ride a two-litre strategy, uh, two-litre, not litre, two-litre strategy with uh yeah, at, at the Vuelta. But yeah, just quickly, do you agree or nah? Do you think they'll go full in for one of them? We can't say it from this far out. For example, 
we saw in the Dauphiné that Kreisberg fell out. If, for example, Dumoulin falls out the week before La Vuelta, then they're going to go for Roglic. So it's hard guessing from this far out, knowing that pre-Tour de France, we had so much trouble with injuries and such. So I don't want to shout, they're going to go for two two leaders. But I believe that if you go to the Vuelta with those two people, then you got to go for two leaders. I got to be honest, though, I have not checked the parkour, so I don't know whether there's enough time trials to really help out Dumoulin and in general, whether the climbs fit Roglic more or Dumoulin, because on paper, Vuelta climbs fit Roglic so well, it's ideal for him. And that's what we saw to, throughout the Tour de France as well, the climbs that are Vuelta-like climbs were ideal for him. And I believe that Dumoulin is worse on those climbs. I've got another question in regards to uh, Jumbo Visma. And it's a question that has mainly been found in the Belgian media because Wout van Aert is obviously the name in cycling for Belgium next to Remco Evenepoel right now. A lot of people and even non-Belgian people have dared to ask the question, what if you start this Tour de France and just for experiment, you have an art as GC leader? How far do you think he can get? Oh, it's hard on those punchy climbs. The thing is, I think pretty far because Jumbo Visma, they control the pace. Jumbo Visma, they're the team, all Tour de France, they got their hand on the the speed lever. And so they weren't actually good at calibrating to that and riding where they need to with that speed lever like Ineos are. But, yeah, I'm sure they probably could have made it. I reckon he could have got top five. Um at least top five is realistic. He definitely could have been a threat. Um, so yeah, I think. But I don't know. Could he have won? Oh, it's, a, it's a lot of different things would have to go his way. Um, I don't. I don't think so. There's still a lot of steep climbs he lost time on. But yeah, it'd be interesting. It's a lot different stress though, riding as a GC leader uh, rather than riding with complete abandon and freedom. But something we've got to talk about, Benji, and we don't really like talking about it too much is doping at the Tour de France and two things two things we need to address we spoke before the pod yeah saying oh yeah we have to talk about this otherwise people get say why aren't you talking about this and I guess you know I'm not a mainstream media person neither is Benji but the podcast is reasonably big now or the platform is reasonably big so uh, I, I can't go out I don't go out and just say wild things anymore that being said, if you look up what I've said on, in the past on my YouTube channel, I don't shy away from doping stuff. I, the full saying stuff I addressed, um, Bjarne Reese becoming manager at NTT, addressed that, had a pretty unpopular opinion about that. Um, Sun Yang, etc., the swimmer. So, yeah, like I'll address it when something's really happening. I don't go out there. I'm never going to make videos or make content and be like, this guy won the Tour de France and we didn't expect him to. So he must be doping. I think the people that have come out and said that, and it's been really disappointing to me actually, um, the amount of people that have come out after Pogacar's ITT win and have said doping, etc. And I had my reaction stream. I shut that down quickly because the live chat was just a joke. It's like, why even watch the race if when anyone wins or does something sort of different or has a great performance you're just going to say dope like why watch cycling then if you have if you genuinely have such little faith in any performances in cycling then 
and it's a, and it's a and that is then also a problem for you, then why watch? Now I don't have I don't have any problem with someone going in, looking and be like, okay, Pagatchas, watts per kilo, etc. Here they were. Um, we've calculated them like really accurately. We haven't just been like ballparked and been like, he's doing eight watts per kilo, which is people came out with those numbers. It's like that's not literally not backed up by anything he did or the VAM or the wind, etc. Uh, and given that Richie Port was only 20 seconds behind him on the climb. So if you if people want to form a coherent argument using numbers as to why his performance was categorically not possible clean. At least you've at least you've done the work and tried, but there's been people on Twitter who just and these people with like reasonable followings and who follows who like allegedly are cycling fans and are employed by mainstream outlets who just immediately taint taint the performance and they're like, well, he can't do that. That's why I've been trying to talk the whole week last week about it and say, okay, well, he was twenty seconds ahead of Port on the climb. Roglic, his watts per kilo was significantly off what they modelled he should be doing on the climb. Roglic's helmet was halfway off his head. Tom Dumoulin is not 2017 Bergen Tom Dumoulin. Like, I can't hear any more people saying, oh, well, Tom Dumoulin would have won the World Championships individual time trial with that performance. It's like, did you not watch the three weeks preceding this where he got dropped on all the climbs whenever the pace went up? Like, he's not the same rider as 2017. He's just come back from a year and a half off. And I haven't heard anyone accusing Richie Port of doping. And he did the best time trial of his of his career, just about. He did the same time as Tom Dumoulin, who people are saying would have won the world champs with that ITT. And Port's 35, and no one's accusing him of doping, nor should they, by the way. The, the things people are saying, when you then test them against what else has happened in the time trial, what else has happened in the preceding three weeks, they don't really stack up. And that's not to say that I'm naive about what happens in the Tour de France, by the way. Um, but I don't. I watch it with my eyes open. And if something happens, it's a bit out there. I don't just go on my keyboard and mash doping. Like that. I think that's a waste of time, and it just ruins the whole the whole tour and spectacle for everybody. Um, Whereas calculating, okay, well, if Rico from 2008 or wherever, if someone like him turned up this year and um, a certain Giro stage winner, I think in the 20-teens did something in a time trial, it's like that stuff where you calibrate it against everything else they've done in their career and it's so different and you calculate the watts per kilo, then you can be like, okay, well, that is, you can at least be suspicious of that. But the Pagacha thing, I think, it's been disappointing to me. It's been a long rant. It's been disappointing to me how the narrative quickly soured. Um, and these are people who are not covering Atlas. Like, if you want to talk about doping, do a good job about covering Operation Atlas and what's going on with that. Do a good job with the Freeman Tribunal and that coming up soon and cover that in detail and what comes out of that. Do the hard work. Don't just look at a performance like that and shit on it and then... Yeah, the sport looks shit. Um, when it's probably cleaner than majority of sports, it's cleaner than running, that's for damn sure. It's cleaner than the UFC. It's cleaner than weightlifting. It's cleaner than basketball. It's cleaner than NFL. It's probably cleaner than soccer too. So, um, yeah, I don't know why everyone just wants to beat ourselves up about it. Like, don't be naive, but also don't go out there to ruin the sport either. 
And that kind of feeds into the Kintology. I'll let you come in in a second, Benji, but you're probably going to get a coffee by now. But the Quintana thing as well, all I'll say this, this hasn't run its course yet, so we don't know for sure either way. To me, this is reminding me a lot of the Jakob Fulsang drama from the start of this year. It came out that there was like an anti-doping raid in Nari Quintana's hotel room during the tour, during the tour, I think it was, Benji, not after the tour. And products were seized by whichever... It wasn't like the police and it wasn't anti-dope, French anti-doping and it wasn't WADA. It was some French department that covers doping or something. They seized certain products from Quintana's room. Apparently, he then went to the police station and, and by the way, this is then reported that Quintana doping raid and seized products, illegal products. Looks really bad, right? He then went to the, now he released a statement today. He went to the police station, gave his statement, etc. Says he never doped in his career. Said his products were all legal. They're just products they weren't familiar with, and it should all be fine. So, if that ends up being the case, what a shame for the Tour de France that managed to go through and have no COVID positives except for a couple of staff members and the big boss Prudhomme, but no riders tested positive that we know of, and they finished the tour when it seemed impossible to do so. And then we've got this story about an anti-doping raid um, against Quintana. And, yeah, it's a real shame. If it it ends up being nothing and a big misunderstanding, the problem is his name is going to be tarnished forever by it. And the clicks and coverage and reach of the initial article that is sometimes irresponsibly shared and irresponsible headlines from people, and I'm I'm one to talk about irresponsible headlines, but... People, you know, my cap, my titles, but people saying do, like Quintana doping raid and the way they phrase it, they get more reach and clicks. And then the subsequent retractions and the publishing of, oh well, actually, it was nothing. Less people see that. Same thing happened with the full same thing. Um, the same news outlets and media outlets that published all the shit about him um, having Count Dracula like drinking blood out of his arm in a middle of like Monaco in daylight. They didn't really publish too much. That's a joke, by the way, because that's how ludicrous it was when you heard it. They didn't really publish anything or as much in headlines about, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, WADA and CADF came out and said there wasn't really <laughs> there wasn't really anything to progress with it. So, yeah, we I've been a bit down about it the last two days, if I'm being honest. Uh, how have you felt about all this all the talk about doping, Benji, given that there's been no positives. I think I'm going to keep it a lot shorter than you have, and it's because my feeling towards it is just way simpler. And it's a fact that an event like this, it sucks for everyone involved. You've got... I'm pointing at the Nidal thing, by the way. It sucks for the passionate followers of the sport who, well, they want to watch a sport they love without all the mad drama surrounding it. And additionally, it's bad for the image of the sport itself towards people that don't necessarily follow it and then say, yeah, no, nah, I, I don't like that. And then additionally, you've got the third people that it will influence is depending on the outcome of the investigation, you've got the fact that we don't know if it's going to end up whether he's innocent or not. But until we know, all the rumors are going to affect Naito and Arkea, and from that point onwards, as you said, it's going to be tied to his name, even if he's innocent. You've got the fact that there was some doping stuff surrounding him in his career. So it really sucks for 
Nairo potentially as well. And that's the fact that because, like you said, media and Twitter jump onto this like like flies on a dead animal. People don't consider possibility of early allegations being false. And I hate that about social media and Twitter that whenever there's drama, they jump on it and draw conclusions before everybody knows the facts. And it's the same with cancel culture a bit. The fact that someone points something out, the whole internet starts blazing upon it. And after a few months, they figure out it's not true. But for six months, the person that was initially involved, yeah, has been seen as the the perpetrator. And in this occasion, you've got Quintana, who was also seen as a perpetrator, and maybe still by plenty of people until we know the actual facts. And personally, I don't want to be that kind of guy that accuses things when they don't know what is going on. I choose to see the beauty in whatever is going on in this world, in cycling and whatever. And I hold hope that change is real in the sport and that there's positivity in there as well. And I don't want to be the negative guy that dives into conspiracy theories because you don't know what it does with people if accusations are false. A lot of people accusing don't think about what if this is not true, what I'm saying? What if I'm blatantly calling someone not credible and take their credibility away? Yeah, I I don't like that because, yeah, in general, it affects people. And I want to be sure that when I actually accuse somebody of something, I want to have damn good evidence that it's true. And at the moment, that's not the case yet because we don't know the facts. And because of that... I will just be patient and uh, I'll continue looking at the sport the way it is and we'll see what happens with with this individual Quintana case. Yeah, I mean, to me it looks like I don't think too much will happen. I could be wrong, but they didn't boot him out of the tour. They're an NPCC team, um, so I don't think they can have Cortezone even in competition. NPCC teams, they can't. So, like, if Quintana was suffering from that nettle sting, I don't think he could even have a Tiwi for cortisone with it. I think he would have had to have left the tour. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It'll be cleared up at some point, but I'm not, like, sitting here waiting, like, with bated breath, being, like, oh, refresh, constantly pressing F5, waiting to hear news about it. It's not something that uh, I get really excited about. When I hear this stuff, I don't think, oh, wow, if I make a video on this, I'm going to get so many views, whereas I think the news outlets feed off this. They're like, oh, yeah, the tour's finished, but... We've got this other gravy train, this doping stuff. I'm like, ah, it's ultimately not good for the sport. But that's probably enough about uh, about that stuff. But I felt we had to address it. Um, but let's pick, to end on a better note, Benji, let's pick your funniest moment or like most karmic moment of this year's tour. And I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal the obvious one from you and let you think about it. The obvious one is stage one. It's almost three weeks ago. Stage one, wet stage in Nice terribly dangerous and they're on a descent and Astana (laughs) decide to attack Yumbo Visma and attack the bunch and Miguel and Lopez loses his back wheel and just skids out of control and we can shouldn't laugh but can laugh now I guess because he didn't really hurt himself at all um and slid into a a pole and it was in like if you look up instant karma in the dictionary if that would be in the dictionary um that was it Estana doing that and Lopez immediately coming to yeah that fate 
and then having to realize, oh shit, we probably shouldn't, and then getting like berated and called out afterwards by Luke Rowe. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, any any funny or lighthearted moments that really stick out in your memory? I won't go for that. I'll I'll just name a wholesome moment for me, and that's that's the last kilometer of the stage of Kwiatkowski because. Yeah, that that sticks with me emotionally. That was a great finish of a stage, and I want to highlight that still. But if I ha- if I really had to go for a funny moment, we spoke about it earlier. You skipped over it, and it's a post tour thing, and it's the fact that we had a Movistar rider complain about the tactics of Jumbo, and that's a real meme for me because Movistar is the team with horrendous tactics in the past. Obviously, Enric Mas is not the rider that is connected to those events because he wasn't there yet, but. It's such a meme to have a Movistar rider give tactical advice to Jumbo Visma in the Tour de France. I mean, Enric Mas not on my Christmas list after the only time he was in the front in the wind in the entire tour was when Richie Porter had a puncture and uh, Enric Mas decided that was when he was going to increase the pace. Um, I would have done the same thing if I was him, but um, I'm a bad person, so that's not really something to, yeah, a benchmark to test yourself against it's classic Movistar. They get fifth on GC. They win team's classification. I don't think we mentioned one of their riders for three weeks in our daily stage recaps. We literally didn't mention Enric Mas at all um, or any Movistar riders, really. They did nothing. They weren't contesting for stages. Oh, Mark Soler. Oh, sorry, Mark Soler, who could have maybe won a stage. Yeah, he was in breakaways, but he... His tactics weren't great. Sorry, yeah, we did criticize Soler, but yeah, it's just kind of a classic Movistar Tour de France again. But that being said, very solid result from Enric Mas coming fifth on GC in this year's tour. Strong field, very high level performances from people in this year's tour. He wasn't close. He really wasn't close to Port, Roglic, and uh, and Pagacha, but still. That's a step up from Enric Mas, and he's got to be really happy with that. That's a stronger performance than his, what was it, a podium result at Vuelta a few years ago in maybe oh, 2018. This is a better this is a better performance than that. Um, so I do have to give credit to him there. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much all from us about the Tour de France. Obviously won by Tadej Pogacar. Surprise result. Benji gets his, gets his pick. We might share on Twitter or somewhere. We didn't go through each of our picks for the stage from the preview. I think that would have been a little bit tedious. Um, I think we had a good first week and then tailed off a little bit, uh, or maybe I did. But uh, we'll find a place to share that somewhere. Follow us on on Twitter. Um, our Twitter handles are in the show, show notes and in the description of this YouTube video and or on Instagram. And, yeah, we'll share it somewhere so you can see that and maybe laugh at us. But, yeah, did you... We want to hear from you guys as well, and guys and girls. Did you enjoy our Tour de France coverage? I think you did. We got a lot of nice ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, which we really appreciate. That sort of stuff really helps us go out to sponsors, which we're trying to get now for the Giro d'Italia, trying to pitch to sponsors to sponsor the Giro d'Italia. It's not going to be like where do or the move, like you relax. Um, they got to do what they got to do, but it's not going to be, you know, just be a 30 second pre roll. Um, so you don't need to worry about that. But, yeah, those ratings and reviews really help us show, hey, we got a special community here. And I think we do. We've got a special community podcast on, on the channel. You know, Benji's channel, he's got his own special community. And um, it's like true engagement. And I kind of get a little bit emotional talking about it because, yeah, it's crazy just having 
this platform to talk to people about cycling this much and now doing it with Benji has been really rewarding for me. I've been in Australia my whole time with the Lantern Rouge channel, filming it, editing it, talking talking to literally no one, don't know anyone in the industry, never spoken to anyone about cycling in my life. And it's really nice to have this. It's been more social for me, um, even though I'm still doing it at antisocial hours, not for next year though. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to say thank you to all, all of you who did give a review and a rating. It, it means a lot and the nice comments. We read all of them on YouTube. We do read all of them and we really appreciate them as well. Um, but I'll let you sign off, Benji, if you, because I'm getting a little bit teary here. No, I'm just kidding but not really, um, <laughs> to finish off our Tour de France recap and maybe tell, tell everyone what we've got in the, in the works in the next day or so or next week as well. Yes, yes, yes. We've got plenty in the works. And in general, I also want to thank everybody that listened to us in the last three, three and a half weeks because it's a journey that we both anticipated to try and start somewhere in the future. And we decided to go for it. We decided to... We basically spoke to each other once before we did it. That's the funniest part of it all. We spoke to each other on, on chat a few times, but we were both doing different things on YouTube. We both had different plans and we both had the common plan of doing a podcast of cycling at some point. And we were like, well, you were like, how about we just do it? And I was like, okay, sure. And we called each other once before we actually started it. I think the day after already or something. And I was driving my car on the on the highway, if I recall correctly. And we basically went over what we would need to do to make this enjoyable for ourselves. And most importantly, make this as easy to listen to and enjoyable and structured for the people listening. And we decided to kind of have a test at it on the Britannia Classic just before the Tour de France. I really enjoyed that. It was not necessarily the most high-profile race, but maybe that was a good thing for the first one because we learned that at certain points there's more interest in certain topics and we applied that to the Tour de France and we changed our ways and we bettered that. Now there's plenty of things we can better on the Tour de France. We are planning to have actual cameras on the screen on YouTube and that kind of stuff. We said it already beforehand. Giro, we will. And we want to change the production quality of this to make it as good as possible without losing the essence of it, which is jumping straight into the race and the race analysis and the highlights. We don't want it to feel like it's uh, too perfect either. <laughs> we want to make it, yeah, fun to listen to. And that's the most important thing. We want to make it a good time for you. And in general, we want to make sure you feel like you spend your time very well listening to our podcast so i hope that's indeed the case and we really enjoyed as well doing so so yeah it's a win-win situation and i'd be spending my time talking about cycling anyway so why not do it on a podcast with you here and again i want to thank you as well mr rouge <laughs> i love saying that for um for doing this with me as well because yeah it's it's a cool adventure and we're just getting started. We've got plenty of races this season and the coming seasons to, to dive into. And for example, tomorrow we're going to have our World Championships preview and it's going to be a pretty in-depth one. We've got plenty of World Championships in the coming days and I'm looking forward to it. After that, we've got, well, the Bing Bang Tour is ongoing. You've got the Giro and we weren't 100% sure yet, but I'm going to make you make the final decision right now. Are we going to do the legendary Volta of Portugal? Are you kidding? Of course we are. 
maybe not separate pods. Maybe maybe just little recaps at the end. But yeah, we're gonna we're gonna cover the Grandissima, aka the best stage race on the calendar. But yeah, we've got a lot coming up. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. We've said that too many times now, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow with the World Champs preview. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 